Let's call upon the Lord in prayer as, as we consider today the fifth paragraph in chapter 5. So we're 5-5 five, five, uh, today, looking at the relationship of divine providence and our own sanctification. You know, we've been looking at providence, particularly providence and divine concurrence, or God's use of sin and evil and wickedness to accomplish his decree. For God governs all things from the least to the greatest, and of course, that necessarily means that God uses even evil deeds, even the wickedness of men to accomplish his purposes. And so we've been working through that somewhat, not, not merely theoretical, but working through the scriptures from a, a, a much bigger picture, kind of a cosmic scale. But the question then comes, what about sin among God's people? Does God use that? Does God permit that? Does God decree that? And because you know, we, these things are necessarily difficult sometimes for us to wrap our minds around, we, we need to confess our dependence upon the Lord, upon His Word and Spirit, in order to discern these things rightly. So let's pray and call upon our God for His help. Our Lord God, we are grateful that You have made Yourself known to us. You are high and lifted up. You are worthy of our praise, our exaltation, our worship. You are a holy, holy, holy God, awesome in Your glory and splendor, magnificent in all that You do. All that You do is good because You are holy good. Help us as we consider what Your Word teaches to us about Your providential rule of all things, including even the use of our own sin and folly and weakness to accomplish Your good purposes in and among Your people. Help us to look to Christ. Cause our faith to grow as we meditate upon these things, that we would not be filled with, with fear and trembling and uh, anxiety, but rather that our confidence would grow, knowing that our true and living God is actively at work among us and within us. We ask this in Christ's name, for His sake. Amen. <clears throat> in Second Chronicles, we have the recording there of King Hezekiah. And, and you probably know, as we work through the, the kings, there are plenty of bad ones, right? But every now and then, we're encouraged with the testimony, with the recording of, of a righteous king. And we have what such one in, in Hezekiah. But in Second Chronicles chapter 32, we read this, beginning in verse 25, Hezekiah did not make return according to the benefit done to him, for his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came upon him and Judah and Jerusalem, but Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon him in the days of Hezekiah. Then if we skip down to verse 31, And so, in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him 
and to know all that was in his heart. This text, this reference is one of the footnotes that we have in our Confession of Faith in chapter 5, paragraph 5. And there's a particular phrase that's, that's helpful and important. So in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that had been done to the land or done in the land, God left him to himself. He left Hezekiah to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. This, this idea of leaving to oneself is, is, a, is a critical piece, and we'll see very similar language here in paragraph 5. And the, the reason for this is it demonstrates, it reminds us of what we've been looking at, that God is not the author of sin. Sin and wickedness and evil always come from one place. Where does it come from? The creature, right? From the corruption of man. And yet God has decreed for his own use, for his own glory, for his own good, and we'll see in this paragraph, for our own good, the use of such sin. So let's read together in paragraph 5 in our confession. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for other just and holy ends." so that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment, for his glory, and for their good. May the Lord help us to understand these things. Notice, first of all, the character of God is once again central. We're going to notice three things that, are, that come out from the paragraph that, that are, I think, most important for us to, to wrap our head around. There's a lot of opportunities for us to chase rabbits, uh, to, to go down some dead-end paths. And, and there are some things that we, we might tease out and study to our profit, but three things emerge that I think are the most helpful for us to grab hold of and recall. Number one is that, once again, the character of God is central. As we contemplate these things, as we think about even sin that remains in us and God's use of that sin for his purposes, we, we must fix in our minds the good character of God. But secondly, that God does, in fact, use sin and wickedness even in his own people to accomplish his purposes. It is not only in the world, it is not only among the reprobate that he uses sin to accomplish his purposes, but even among his people he does so. And, and paragraphs 5 and 6, by the way, Dr. Renahan said, you know, we really ought to read these together because they're two sides of in a sense, one, one coin. Paragraph 5 deals with the use of, of sin by providence among God's people. And then we'll see in next, next week, Lord willing, in paragraph 6, it is the use of sin among the wicked and the reprobate. And God actually using that sin to accomplish his purpose of justice. 
But here, we're going to look at the, the providence and the use of sin in a believer. And then also, lastly, providence and the use of sin for our preservation. For our preservation. So notice in the first place, and I'm going to be very brief about this because we've been covering this, but it, by way of reminder, that the character of God is once again central in our meditation. If we go back to chapter 2, in paragraph 1, we see <clears throat> the, the character of God laid out before us. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible without body parts or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute. Now, that language is going to sound very familiar when we get back over to chapter 5, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God. Before we contemplate the use of sin, even the existence of sin among God's people, we need to be reminded that it is the most wise, righteous, and gracious God who makes use of this. We've been saying this throughout our, our study, the whole study on this chapter, but we should not pass by this intro without reminding ourselves, just as the writers of our confession, I think, wisely have done, to remind ourselves of the very thing that we are most likely to forget. Here is where the proverbial rubber meets the road. Not if, but when we are tempted. Not if, but when we succumb to temptation as Christians. Not if, but when we sin. The question inevitably arises, sometimes in our own minds, why has God allowed this? What good could this possibly do? I, I have sinned in such a way to, that I've harmed myself, perhaps I've harmed others, I've harmed the reputation of Christ. What, what possible good can come from this? And as we, before we even seek to answer the question, we need to discipline our minds to think in terms of the wisdom, the righteousness, and the graciousness of God, the very character of God that ought to govern our thinking about everything. As many of you know, we, we had an opportunity to, to audit <clears throat> a class a couple of weeks ago at IRBS. It was on pastoral counseling. And uh, Dr. Ryan Davidson was the instructor. And one of the, the discussions, we had a number of offline discussions, but one of the discussions we had was, was helping and, and counseling and exhorting one another to love and good works and, and particularly in the context of a brother or sister wrestling with a particular sin. Perhaps it's a besetting sin. Uh, it's anger, or a sharp tongue, or, or sexual immorality, or something else. And 
as, as a counselor, you, you want biblically to deal with, the very, with that very specific issue and call them to repentance and, and help them to see what, what repentance looks like in that area. But one of the things that Dr. Davidson suggested, and I think he's exactly right, is that sometimes what we neglect to do is assign to a brother or sister and encourage them to meditate upon theology proper. That as we think about a particular sin, let's say it's anger. And, and I've done this often, as, as both in my own soul, but also working with other brothers and sisters, encouraging them to read and study certain things, to study the Scripture, what the Scriptures say about anger, for example. And we can meditate upon that, and we can, through the Scriptures, discover those, those hidden roots in our hearts that provoke us from, from the inside out to sinful anger. But if we're not also studying who God is, his wisdom, his righteousness, his graciousness, his perfection in his wrath, his promise to make all things new, to make all things right, then we are likely to face long-term additional discouragements. We need, to, we need to meditate upon who God actually is. And so the writers of our confession, I think we're very wise to point this out and to remind us at this particular point, before we, in a sense, meditate upon what do I do, how do I think about sin that remains within me with respect to God's providence, the first thing that we have to think about, we ought to think about, is the character of God. That for whatever I may think next about the answer to my question, what good is this? What profit is this? What good can possibly come? We need to reflect upon the good character of God. But the confession goes on in the second place. We're going to look at the first, the first half here of, of confession, paragraph 5 for the next point, looking at the, the providence and the use of sin in a believer. Notice what it says, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled. Notice, first of all, the assertion that this wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes. Oftentimes. In other words, this is, here's a big fancy theological word for you. This is normal. This is ordinary. This is common. That this good and wise and gracious and righteous God will oftentimes leave his own children for a season to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts. Now we go back to the passage with Hezekiah. That's, that's almost exactly the phrase that's used, is it not? God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. 
And we know from James, James very clearly says that God does not tempt anyone to sin. When, when someone is tempted, let not him say in his heart that God has tempted me. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. The, the use of the word here in our confession is the older use. It's the, it's the use of testing. God will test his children. Now, we've, we've noted this multiple times as we've worked through this study, that our Lord Jesus used even as a, in, in, in a, as a kind of parable, he said, you being evil, as parents, know how to give good gifts to your children. He makes a, a, a somewhat of a, a comparison. He says that even, even we as parents who are finite, who are wrestle with our own sin, we still have the capacity, still have some measure of wisdom to do good things for our children. And then Jesus, of course, asked that rhetorical question, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to his children? Well, we as parents know sometimes that we have perhaps exhorted a son or a daughter in a particular way, and they've not heeded that. And so we have to say, okay, we're going to leave you to your own folly. Sometimes this is a, a young kid. My mom tells the story. When I was little, not even quite two, I had the little tyke bike, and I just there were a couple stairs. They had the split-level house, and there were a couple stairs going down into a room. And I just insisted and just would not heed the warning to stay away from the stairs. So at one point, they finally said, okay, and let me topple head first down the stairs. That wasn't a whole flight of stairs. It was a couple steps. But I learned, probably not the first time knowing me, but I learned eventually there are times, even as a parent, we leave a child to their own folly. In fact, sometimes as parents, it's, it's our own lack of wisdom that we fail to do that. There's a necessity sometimes. Um, we, if we cover too many of our kids' mistakes, they'll learn to make some of those decisions on their own. So oftentimes, we're told, and that God may leave his own children. So this, this tells us very clearly that the subject of this paragraph is God's dealing with Christians. So we're not dealing with matters of justification here. We're dealing with matters of sanctification. We're dealing with matters of sanctification. How does God, or does God use, even sin in the process of sanctification, in this process of growing his children unto godliness, righteousness, and holiness? And the language here, whether it's with Hezekiah or in our confession, the idea of leaving, to his, his, leaving his own children is a reminder to us that God is not the author of sin. So just as the, the parent, you know, in, in this case, my, my parents allowing me to ride my little tight bike down the stair, they were not the author of my folly. That came from me, but they left me to it. And, and let me experience the natural consequence of that action. Well, how much more is an omniscient, omnipotent, and holy, benevolent, heavenly Father able to accomplish good by leaving us? Now, and, and specifically, it says leaving us to something. Leaving us to manifold temptations and the corruptions of our own hearts doesn't leave us, he says, to his, to, to his provocation, but to that which comes from within us. And so what does he leave us to? He leaves us to 
manifold temptations and corruptions of our own hearts. But there's a purpose for that. It's, it's, not, it's not punitive. It is, it is not so that God can sort of get his kicks by watching our misery. It, it's, it's, not a, it's not child abuse. Why does God do this? Well, it's very clear in the, in the, the language of our confession to chastise them for former sins. I had the occasion, it's been several years ago, but we were, uh, we were seeking to gain access to the Tennessee Colony Prison in Palestine, Texas. Uh, we, through a series of providences, we knew a man who had previously been chaplain there who was leading, uh, actually they had established a Reformed Baptist church within the walls of the prison. A new chaplain came on board, dispersed all of those things, uh, fired this other man, and basically dispersed these Reformed Baptist men into a more uh, a big-box ecumenical kind of worship service. So we were laboring to get access to do a Bible study in there. And through that, I had opportunity to correspond by letter with a man who was had been incarcerated for, I think at that time, about 15 years and was waiting on, on parole. By his own admission, by his own confession, he was justly there, justly convicted, and came to faith in Christ in the prison. And after he was released, ultimately, his parole was denied uh, two or three times over a period of a couple of years that I was corresponding with him, and eventually was, was released. And I spoke to him on the phone after that. He was, he was living at a, at a kind of a, a, on a farm in a work camp, a release program still very much paying the consequences for previous sin. Now, God was not continuing to punish him in that sense, but God was chastising him now as a son, now as one who belonged to him, but reminding him of his previous corruptions, which by his own testimony were vile and wicked. To his own children, God leaves to manifold temptations, the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness that remains, that they may be humbled. Saints, it is, it is actually a blessing of God when he discovers unto us the, the hidden corruptions that remain. Because it, it, isn't it the case that we tend, as a general rule, we tend to overstate or overestimate our own righteousness and we are overly critical with others. That's our, that's our natural tendency. And, and even as those who are redeemed in Christ, that still remains often a struggle. And so God may use the sin and corruption that remains in us as he, in a sense, withdraws his hand of restraining grace from us and says, okay, I'm going to give you just, just, a, just a small taste of where you might go if my grace were not abounding in you and sustaining you. And by doing so, we discover the hidden strength of sin that remains in us. 
It has the effect of humbling us. And in that humility, we turn back to the Lord in faith, uh, trusting in His power, then, not our own strength. Dr. Rinehan, in his treatment of this paragraph, quotes from a Puritan minister by the name of John Downen. And Pastor Downen makes this observation. He says, none of the afflictions of the faithful, no, not death itself, the greatest, excuse me, the greatest and last of temporal evils are unto the faithful punishments for sin. Hear that clearly. None of the afflictions, not even death itself, are unto the faithful. In other words, are unto the children of God punishments for sin, but only the chastisements of a loving father. See, they're not merely punitive. It's not only God's wrath and punishment, but it's for a particular purpose. It's a chastisement. It's a correction. inflicted for his glory and for their good. For howsoever the punishments of the wicked and chastisements of the godly be in matter and in outward appearance, yea, even in respect of bodily sense and the apprehension of natural reason, all one. You see what he's saying? From the outside, God's punishment of an unbeliever and God's chastisement of one of his children may look the same. Perhaps it's a physical illness. Perhaps it's financial calamity. Perhaps it's, it's something else. And from the outside looking in, it may look exactly the same. It may even feel the same. But it's not. Yea, or yet, is there great and manifold difference between them to be observed by the eye of spiritual judgment, enlightened by the bright beams of God's truth shining in His Word? As first the chastisements of the faithful and punishments of the wicked do differ in their efficient causes who inflict and impose them. For they come from the hand of a gracious Father reconciled unto us in Christ, these from a just judge and from a powerful and incensed enemy. In other words, the first difference we see is the very source. One comes from one who is oriented towards us by way of covenant as a gracious Father. The other comes from the source of a judge who justly condemns the wicked. Downen goes on a little bit further. He says, they are inflicted, these afflictions, are afflicted in love and fatherly compassion, which causeth his bowels to yearn and his heart to relent, so as he cannot cast off his children like the wicked, but receiveth them again into his former favor. After that, they are humbled under his chastising hand. Now, Downen goes on to give examples from the Scriptures, uh, example after example after example of God doing precisely this with his people. God's providential rule over his children, and specifically his providential rule concerning their sin, does not look merely or only to the past or even to the present, but ultimately to the future. And not just the future of tomorrow, but an eternity of tomorrows. 
God's providence is ultimately concerned with the preservation of his people and their preparation for their ultimate and eternal good. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> Paul himself testifies that <clears throat> he had had uh, unspeakable, quite literally unspeakable, uh, un, un, he was not able to articulate and describe the full measure of what he saw. As he describes himself caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And I heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Then in verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Lord is interested, ultimately, not just in our happiness in this life, but in our being fitted for the kingdom of heaven. For us being preserved and made ready for glory. That's, that's, that's the last part of paragraph 5. And, see the semicolon followed by and. So here's a further purpose. We've seen to discover hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of hearts, the humbling of the saints, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. And even the, the language of uh, to raise them, it's in a sense now for us to raise our eyes, lift up our eyes, and look upon Christ. But also, this is an illusion, it's a reference, it's a reminder that ultimately we're going to be raised from these carnal bodies, these corrupt bodies, and, we'll be the, and the corrupt will put on the incorruptible, the perishable will put on the imperishable. <clears throat> he wants for us as his people to have a more close and constant dependence for our support upon himself. Ultimately, that's our greatest good. It is to be more and more dependent upon the Lord. This is Paul's testimony. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That sounds simple enough to say. But how hard is that to believe that? How hard, how difficult is this to accept the limitations of our humanity, even the limitations of our good 
part of our humanity, but how much more to recognize and to accept that in the wisdom of God, in the goodness of God, in the graciousness of God, he uses even my sin and folly to bring me closer to him. Having discovered those inward corruptions and the inward weaknesses, he then calls me again and again to faith. Dr. Renahan quotes also from another Puritan by the name of Nicholas Estwick. And I think this is helpful. He says, let us lay all we have down at the feet of our God. And let us be contented that he should dispose of our health, of our wealth, of our lives, and all that doth belong unto us. Our souls must stand like Elijah in the mouth of the cave, ready to come out when God shall call us, and with Abraham at the door of his tent, ready to entertain death or any evil which God shall send. Neither doth this doctrine take away all passion or suffering for our own misery, or compassion for the misery of others. For we must look upon these evils with a double aspect which are like the cloud that went with the Israelites, black to the Egyptians, but light to God's people. And so this is, this is the discipline of the mind, isn't it, brothers and sisters? When we, observe, whether it's, when we observe evil and wickedness, in a sense, out there, are we, are we capable by faith with looking on those things with two eyes? One, with an eye that sees it for what it is. It is true wickedness. It is true evil. And the source of that is only the creature. And at the same time, we see that this is from the hand of God and that God is a good God, a powerful God, a gracious God, a wise God, will actually use that very thing to accomplish his good purposes. But where we might be okay, or not necessarily okay, but we we can at least academically, theoretically embrace that concept more easily, I think, than we can say, and that's also true of the sin within me. That's also true of the corruption that remains within me. That God is actually using that to accomplish my good. And it's not an excuse for sin. It doesn't take away our responsibility. It doesn't minimize our culpability for sin that remains. But it does help us to view it rightly, doesn't it? That God will yet make a good use of even this. Estwick goes on, he says, Consider them as they are simply evils, and such evils as do deprive us of God's good blessings. Take instance of in sickness as it deprives us of health, and the death of our friends as it deprives us of the life of our friends and the comforts we receive from them. Yea, moreover, consider them as they are the prince of God's displeasure. And in these respects, we may, nay, I say more, we ought to grieve for evils. But now consider them as God's works, as such as do proceed from his most holy will, and as they are by his infinite wisdom directed to us and holy ends, In these respects, we ought to be well-pleased and contented with them. The result of this is to make us more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends, so that 
whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and for their good. As we think about the doctrine of providence, brothers and sisters, let us think in these ways. That because of the character of God, because we can start there, that he is a most wise, most gracious, and most righteous God, that he is able to use even our own sin, even our own folly, even our own weaknesses, even our own corruptions and temptations, to accomplish good uh, in us and and around us. So when we see sin and wickedness, whether it's in the world at large, we'll deal with this in the sermon this morning, what, what, what do we do when we see wickedness of the kind that we observe in Herod? A murderous, deceitful, adulterous, corrupt man. What do we do when we see w- wicked in such evil places doing evil things. Do we despair? Or do we say, no, God is yet going to accomplish some good from this. God is using even that, not not as as a hindrance to his carrying out his decree, but actually as a means of carrying out his decree. But then at that more personal level, when we think about sin in the camp, Sin within us, individually. Sin among us as Christians. Do we put that in a different category? Do we say, ah, but that's different? Or do we say, no, bless God, he is able to use that as well. In fact, not only is he able to, that by his decree he does use those things. And and we could go example after example as we look at even the life of his disciples. I, I, I love the scene that John records for us in John chapter 21, that scene on the beach where Peter is restored to Christ. We're, we're three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And, and it wasn't until the third time that Peter, in a sense, hangs his head and says, I don't even know. You know, Lord. You know. And, and now... Peter's at a place of of humble usefulness. Because his secret corruptions, their hidden corruptions of his heart had been exposed. Just three days earlier, as Peter sat around the dinner table with the other disciples, and Jesus says, one of you will betray me, and all the disciples are asking one question. Lord, is it me? Is it me? But not Peter. Peter didn't have to ask that question. It's not me. All these other jokers, I've had my suspicions about every one of them. They may all fail you, but I will not. Hours later, cock-a-doodle-doo. And Peter's denied his word three times. The pride of his heart was exposed. His his self-reliance and self-strength was brought to the surface. That dross was, was purified so that the Lord in his grace could scrape that off and make Peter useful. Make Peter humble. Make Peter a workable clay, in a sense, in his master's hand. And so when we think about the doctrine of of providence with respect to our own sin and the sin of those near to us, 
may, may the Lord give us grace to think in those ways. That is not, this is not some hindrance to the working out of God's eternal decree, but is actually a means that God has used in his own wisdom, in his own goodness, and his own righteousness to accomplish that. Estwick, one final thought, I'll close here. He says, these works are then like to those double-faced pictures. Look on them one way, and you shall behold an ugly visage. But change your posture and look on the other side, and you shall see a beautiful person. And as Luther saith, look up to God, and we have wherein to rejoice, but look unto our look into ourselves, and we have cause to mourn. Therefore, let there be joy in mourning, and mourning in joy. We'll close there. Look, we'll look next time. Paragraph six begins with "As for those wicked and ungodly men." And the subject of paragraph five is the Christian providence and our sanctification. The subject of the next paragraph will be for those who remain hardened and dead in their sin. How does God's, how does that doctrine of, of providence apply there? Any questions on paragraph five? Sure. You know, I think that's a really good question. And th there are a number of ways we, we could answer it. I think first of all, is, is, is to obey, especially then, the commandment we find in Hebrews, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Well, our, our Lord Jesus says that, you know, approaching that day will be what? Rumors of wars and, and tribulations and persecutions and famines and all kinds of things. As we see these things happen, we're reminded that we are one day closer. When the Lord returns, we don't know. But we know for every persecution we endure, we are one day closer to that event. And so we encourage each other to, brother, gather and worship the Lord. Gather among the people of God. Because one of the things that the, the enemy does, our, our, the Word of God tells us the enemy is like a, a roaring lion, lurking about, seeking whom he may destroy. And we, we know even from nature that the lion doesn't ever go into the middle of the herd and snatch off a strong one in the middle. It's always the weak, the straggler, the loner. 
and our our enemy, the enemy of our souls, is 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 rightly compared to a lion in the way, not just his ferociousness, ferocity, but his his tactics. And so we need to remind one another to the brother who's lost his job, to the to the to the one struggling with illness, the one who's wrestling with their own sin. The, the temptation at that very moment is to isolate it. And, and the best advice we can give to one another, best encouragement we can give is, no, c- come among the brothers and sisters. Come into the community of faith and, and, and be open. You don't have to gut yourself publicly, but, but be open that you're, you're, you're struggling with either something done to you or, or happening upon you or something within you that you're wrestling with. Um, I think... <clears throat> Secondly, as as a as a as a congregation, are we faithful to pray for such things? Um, are we faithful to receive a brother or sister who is grieving the corruption of their own hearts? Do we receive them as fellow sinners with like struggles, or do we receive them more as the Pharisee does? And I think that's a there's there's probably more that we uh, should think about along those lines, but that's kind of what comes to mind right off the top of my head. Yeah, Erica. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. What did you call me? <laughs> uh huh. Amen. Thank you. Now, well, let's pray and uh, give ourselves to uh, preparing for worship. Father, we are grateful that you are a God who is awesome and worthy to be praised. Lord, we thank you that even, even our own sin and folly and corruption is is doesn't go unused, that according to your power and wisdom, even those things are made useful for good. That you are the God who has declared about himself that you cause all things to work together for the good of those who call upon the Lord. And so we give you thanks for that, and we pray that you will help us simply to believe that fact, to grow in our confidence that our our true and living God is indeed working all things together for good. Even that sin which remains in us will have a good use. Help us not to, to grow lax as we think about that, not to, to give ourselves a, a license or permission to sin or to indulge sin, but simply to say, that in your, your wisdom and goodness you make use of even those things 
for your own name's sake, for your glory and honor, for the praise of the name of Christ, and for the good of, of, of each one of us, your people.